Welcome to Being the Dot. I'm your host, Dr. Stacey. Each week, I invite a guest to share the experiences of being an African-American in white spaces. This week, I'm chatting with Mr. Earl Ship. Today's topic, C-Suite Travels. In a recent study done by the Center for Talent Innovation, 20% of Black respondents indicated that they did not believe that another African-American could hold top positions. Well, that is not true of our guest today, Mr. Earl Shipp. He is one of those who's traveled in the C-suite and in top places in his company, and we're excited to bring him to the podcast today. Mr. Earl Shipp is a retired vice president for Dow Chemical U.S. Gulf Coast Operations. Shipp joined Dow in 1981 in Freeport, Texas. Between 1981 and 2000, he'd held several manufacturing engineering positions. In 2000, Shipp was named to dual roles of vice president and site director of Dow's Louisiana operations and global manufacturing. Just at that moment, a rapid growth spurt, if you will, happened for him. And in 2004, he was named global business vice president for Dow. In 2006, he moved to Dubai, UAE to launch the India, Middle East and African region for Dow. One year later, he was named business group president And one year later from that, in 2008, he was named president for India, Middle East, and Africa for Dow. During his five-year tenure living in the Middle East, he served as the deputy chairman of the board of Equate Petrochemical Manufacturing Company, headquartered in Kuwait, and vice president of the board of ME Global DV, headquartered in Dubai, UAE. He returned back home to the U.S. in 2011 and assumed leadership for Dow's Gulf Coast operations for the start of Dow's $7 billion major investment program across the Gulf Coast region. In 2017, Mr. Ship actually retired, if you can believe that, daughters, from his position at Dow Chemical but continued his work with the board of directors for Olin Corporation, National Grid, and St. Luke's Health System. Chip has a chemical engineering Bachelor of Science degree from Wayne State University for all you Detroiters there in the house, and is a graduate of the Indiana University Business School Consortium. He's played an active leadership role in numerous civic and professional organizations in Ohio, Louisiana, Texas, Africa, and in the Middle East. Earl and his wife, Xenia, reside outside of Houston, Texas, and he enjoys sailing, music, and travel. Well, daughters, please welcome Mr. Earl Ship to the podcast. Woo. Cheers all around. Thank you, Dr. Stacy. It's good to be here. Great. Very good. So I'm, I'm thrilled. I've been excited about this all week. Uh, just the opportunity for you to talk with us a little bit about your C-suite travels and how you coped and what you did to excel and all of those good things. So I, I guess I would want to start, certainly I've read your bio, by you just Telling us a little bit about your career trajectory, how you chose chemical engineering, um, and uh, kind of what what led you there, and then what happened after that. It um, I didn't choose chemical engineering; it kind of chose me. Huh. Um, this goes back to high school. I went to uh, Cass Technical High School in De- in in Detroit. Yep, 
And uh, for anyone who's from Detroit, um, you, you know Cast Tech, and hopefully you have a good, good feeling about it. Um, I learned in school that, you know, as you're supposed to, that there's some things that you're a little bit better at than others. Um, Cast Tech was unique in that it had a chemistry and biology program, you know, for people who had an interest in those things. And that turned out to be the curriculum that I enrolled in in high school. And I found that I know absolutely nothing about biology and I have <laughs> no aptitude for it. So that threw out all of the life sciences. And I was never going to be a doctor and, and it just wasn't going to happen. But chemistry came very easy to me because it's, mm. it's rules and formulas. And once you know the formula, it works anywhere. You can go to the moon and the same thing happens. And, and that fit me better. So when I graduated from high school, I enrolled in, you know, or applied to several universities, just like kids do today, in chemistry, and actually got accepted uh, to Wayne State University and several other schools as a chemistry major. One day I was, uh, I was at school, I was in one of the study halls, and one of the counselors came up to me and started talking to me and, and went back and forth. And when I, told, when I told him that I had been accepted in chemistry, to Wayne State University said, ah, there's somebody you need to talk to. Come with me right now. Turns out there was a recruiter in his office who had just come by the school for normal information, you know, I guess the things that they do. And he started talking to me about chemical engineering. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up changing my major to chemical engineering was after that discussion. And the one thing that he said that uh, really stuck with me, he said, you can still do your chemistry, but engineers make more money. Ah, well, mm -hmm. for a kid growing up in inner city Detroit, you know, that resonated, you know, make more money. Okay, I get that. And so, okay, I can still be a chemist. I can still do the things I want to do and I can get paid more. Okay, where do I sign? Mm -hmm. That's how I ended up becoming a chemical engineer. I had no clue what it was. I thought it was just uh, chemistry uh, in a little bit different form. But that's how I ended up uh, beginning this journey was it was purely happenstance. Well, and it's fascinating because oftentimes that can happen, that there's the serendipity piece or maybe even some divine intervention that gets in there and, and you end up on the path that you're supposed to be on. And it sounds like that's what happened for you. In, in that case, it was. Um, now, as it turned out, as time went on, I learned that the same things that I liked about chemistry, which were rules, formulas, um, also applied to engineering as well. And so that actually turned out to be, you know, for me, a, a really good fit. So when you think about um, the things that were in your mother's way, which may have been obstacles or even stepping stones, maybe, uh, how do you believe that that change in the next generation that is you, of course, as far as things that were blocks or stepping stones or hindrances for you? Probably the big thing was that I didn't have to go first in initial initially. Mm -hmm. It's always harder to go first because, you know, you're, you're, you're going to struggle a lot harder. You're going to have more barriers against you. You're going to have, you know, maybe very little or no support. And at the time I graduated, which was 1981, you know, this was, this was the, this was on the back end of, you know, what we, you know, usually call the civil rights era 
which was the fifties, the sixties, and, you know, maybe into the early seventies, early seventies. And so at the time I graduated and began my professional career, people had already seen black people before in, you know, in the industry that I was going to work at. Now, had they risen very far or had they been able to achieve a lot? No, those barriers were still there. But remember the first barrier is the lock on the door and you, you, you've got to unlock the door first. And so, I was kind of that second generation coming in. So I didn't have to, you know, beat the door down. It was just, okay, I'm in the door and, you know, what are the opportunities and how do you take advantage of it? Equally important, I had someone I could go talk to. The first folks that were, you know, blazing a trail in almost any field, I mean, they were kind of on their own because there was nobody there for them to talk to. There was no one to ask questions. There was no one who could throw in, a, you know, a good word of advice or, or give them any type of encouragement at all. And and I at least had the advantage of having a few people who I could seek out, ask for help or ask for direction or just to be there to bounce things off of. Very nice. So what would you say? It sounds like support systems were very important to you. What would you say have been some of the other challenges that you've had to deal with um, in in your own journey? Our culture is a little, is unique compared to the rest of society. And I think that works for us in many areas, but sometimes in the world of business, that works against us. And so you you end up in a situation where you're doing what you think you need to do, but the situation is different and the environment that you're in is different. And it doesn't work for you. And, and I'll give you an example because this, and it was a long time before I could tell this story, but I, I'll tell this story on, on myself. Um, I, had, I, I got a job with Dow Chemical. Um, actually, it was kind of difficult times when I graduated in 1981. Companies weren't hiring that much, but, you know, I, you know, I got a job with, you know, this little bitty chemical company in Midland, Michigan, and that was where I was going to go to work. Only, uh, in Michigan, they made a lot of auto parts and Lee Iacocca was trying to get a bailout for Chrysler and, you know, long story short. Sure. I didn't have a job by the time I graduated because the, the facility I was going to work in was shutting down. So Dow said they would honor the job request, but the job would be in Texas. That's how I ended up in Texas. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and my thought was, hey, I'll stay here three or four years and then move on to something else. But, you know, I got used to the warm weather, started to like it here. And long story short, I didn't ended up not leaving Texas. During that early period, the company was still expanding overseas because, you know, the markets overseas were better at that time. So I got a, uh, you know, I, I, we were in a meeting and, you know, they started talking about a project in Germany. And, you know, I thought, man, that would be great. I get to go to Germany. You know, I had even gone so far, Dr. Stacy, as I had decided when I get to Germany, I'm going to get a BMW to run down the, the, the Autobahn. You know, just I, I was I was that far. I was that far. And then, lo and behold, the project team was announced and I wasn't on it. Now, at the time I was I had been there three years plus. So I was uh you know, the senior engineer in my department and, you know, they said I was doing good work and they picked a guy next in an office next to me to go to Germany. And there was nothing wrong with him. He was a good engineer, but I wanted to go. And uh, and so I started at disappointment. And about a week later, I ended up at just plain pissed off, you know, because you start to wonder, whoa, 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 what happened here? 
<laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm going to have to go do something about this. So I went and talked to my boss and I sat down in his office and said, you know, Bob, I really wanted to go to Germany. You said I was doing good work. You've given me good ratings. There's a project going on over there. I have the knowledge to do it. How come I didn't get to go? He never even took a breath. He looked at me and said, you could have gone. We didn't know you wanted to go. You didn't say anything. That is a part of our culture. We're taught, put your head down, do your job, do it well, do it better than anybody else, and people will notice. Wrong. That is absolutely not the case. If you are promoting yourself, nobody else is. And you, you, and you got to get used to that. So, you know, when you do something really stupid and then you finally figure out what it is and, you, you, know, you, you know, you can't look yourself in the mirror. So when I could finally look myself in the mirror, Mm-hmm. I promised myself that in this life, never again will I not get something I want because I didn't tell anybody about it. And and God looks out for us because a year later well, they started a project in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I told everybody that I wanted to go to Japan. Ah. If I had seen you walking down the hall in one of the buildings, I'd have stopped you, introduced myself and said, you know, they're doing a project in Japan. I want to go. Mm-hmm. I think they sent me just to shut me up. I love it. Well, that's a great pro tip, daughters, that that putting your head down and doing your work is good. And it's also important to balance that with making known what you want or what your hopes are. There are a lot of different ways to do that. Number mm-hmm. one, you tell people what you want and, you, you know, you're very open about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are always ways that you can do that. But you do have to get the message out because you can't assume that anybody can read minds. Hmm. The other thing, and I, and I've coached a lot of young African-American professionals on this. If you do work, put your name on it. You don't know who's going to see that. You don't know where that report's going to end up. You don't know where that work is going to eventually land. Sure. Put your name on it. That way, you know, you get the credit for what you did. Maybe it gets added to another larger body of information and there's nothing wrong with that. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're not proud enough of what you're doing to put your name on it. Well, okay, well, that's a whole other set of issues that you have to deal with. But if you know that you did good quality work and you're turning it in, put your name on it. It doesn't have to be in, you know, 40 size font, you know, taking up the whole page, but at least down in the footnotes, you know, have your name and the date. And so when people ask, where does come from? Now they have a place to know. There's a lot of different ways to do that. But culturally, that's not what we're taught. And that's a, and that's a real challenge when you're working in, you know, in the business environment, especially in an environment where there aren't a lot of African Americans. So I, I, you were you went exactly where I was going to go next because I think that there is a collaborative nature to the way that we are um, raised, if you will, as African Americans, that we think about the other person, that you're not too boastful, and particularly as you. Uh, find yourself in uh, situations that are different from how you grew up, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think you just nailed it on, on uh, hit the nail with the hammer. So something seems like it shifted between 1981 for you and 2006, that it, it seems like things were, and I'm sure you were moving up in the latter, if you will, but that in 2006, it almost was like, bam, bam, like this steady, and I'm sure it didn't feel quick to you, uh, but rise, that it was clear that you were on the move on a different trajectory. There were a lot of growth opportunities that came in our industry. 
And so some of this is also recognizing that, you know, opportunities come, you know, when they come. And so you just have to kind of work on being ready all the time so that you can take advantage of them when they come. So some of what you saw was actually industry-driven change that was occurring. And, and okay, I was in a position to take advantage of it. And so a lot of rapid-fire opportunities came, you know, from probably the 2000, uh, probably in the, the period around 2000 going forward. Mm -hmm. There were also some demographic changes that were coming as well um, for people who were entering the workforce in and around say 1980, you know, plus or minus four or five years. Think about the folks that were there ahead of us. They were the folks that came into the industry after World War II. So mm -hmm. by the end of the 1990s, all of those folks were starting to retire, which also created some interesting openings and new opportunities because of demographic turnover. Because after the war, a lot of people got hired. And so they put in their 30 years. So you run the math. You hired into a job in 1950. Well, by 1990, 1995, you're ready to go home and, you know, get the retirement check. So for those of us who hired in in the 19 early 80s or late, late 1970s, we were just hitting that midpoint career wise. So if you had the right tools in your toolbox, you were, you know, you, there were some opportunities out there for you. When you moved to Dubai, you were in a leadership role. You were actually in a leadership role and building something, so it seems, yes? Mm -hmm. So tell me some, or tell us some, about your transition, and particularly your transition as it relates to you being a Black man uh, living in Dubai and working and leading even in Dubai. First of all, to get to Dubai, I had to get to Louisiana. Ah, uh, uh-huh. And to get to Louisiana... I had to go to Ohio and Kentucky. Okay. And, and that's what I mean by toolbox. Um, you know, and in, you know, it when was that been early 1990s. You know, I mm -hmm. took a job running one of our smaller locations that made building materials, you know, in Southern Ohio. Actually, I worked in Ohio. I lived in Kentucky across the river. And my wife had a job in West Virginia, which was five miles further up the river. I mean, we were right where the three states met. You know, that came up as a interesting opportunity. I had a chance to be a small, you know, chemical plant manager, but that's where the job was. And I was going to have to leave the Houston area to do it and move into an area with, you know, 1% African-American population, you know, more of a rural area. And that took an awful lot of discussion, you know, and, and, and in the end, we agreed on a couple of things. Number one, we agreed that career wise, neither of us would take roles that would require us to live apart for long periods of time. Number two, we would judge each opportunity by its merit. So we ended up moving to southern Kentucky. It worked. You know, was it the you know, did we enjoy it as the best place we've ever lived in the world? No. But did I learn a lot career wise? Absolutely. Because I learned how to run a facility way away from the mothership, as you will. You know, I was on my own. Mm -hmm. I had a large degree of an autonomy. And, you know, and you're going to make mistakes, but you know, I was far enough away that, you know, I could make the mistakes and fix them before anybody found mm -hmm. out in, in most cases. Understood. So, so sure. that opportunity in the early 1990s is how I ended up running Dow's third largest asset, which is Louisiana operations a decade later. 
I was I was the last of the small site managers in the company at the time the job in Louisiana opened up following mm-hmm. a large merger. And, and actually, mm-hmm. that's exactly what my boss told me. He said, you know, hey, you're the last of the small site leaders. We know that you can do this. So we're going to give you a big chunk of the company to go run. And I survived that. And so eight years later, as the growth in our industry started shifting to the Middle East and the big market in India and then, you know, product into China, we realized that, you know, we didn't really have a presence in the Middle East. And I had been doing work in the Middle East, uh, you know, related to some of my other jobs. And that's how I got, you know, the, the opportunity to go start up the Middle East, India and Africa region for the company. So had I not done those other roles and gained those experiences, there's no way I would have gotten you know, the, the opportunity sure. to go do the role in the Middle East. It just, you know, it, it all kind of builds on itself. So I imagine that the reception in Southern Ohio was slightly different than the reception of you in, uh, in Louisiana was different than the reception in Dubai. Yes, very much so. Could you, could you unpack that for us a little bit of how they looked different? The, um, the assignment in Ohio was a small location. It was 350 people and three chemical plants at the facility. So that, that was relatively small. It was, an, you know, it was an operations role. And although there were very few African-Americans in the area and in the local community, and, and, and also very few at the location. I mean, it just there, there weren't very many from the hiring pool that was local. But it was in the northernmost northern parts of the U.S., and the climate was a little bit more tolerant. Mm. So that, that made it a little bit. Now, there were some interesting challenges. You know, if, um, you know, I learned that if my wife and I went out to dinner, we were going to get spotted because, oh, yeah, that's the, that's the Dow chemical manager. If we went to the movie, the next day somebody would tell me what I saw because mm-hmm. they would see my, my sure my car parked in the parking lot. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you, you got used to that. If I really wanted to go have a good time, you know, okay, I can't do it here, you know, drive to Cincinnati or, you know, or go to Columbus Uh or, or or drive up to Detroit. Detroit is like five hours away. Uh So I, I learned that, you know, while I was accepted occasionally, it could become a fishbowl and it wasn't necessarily because I was black anyone who sat in that chair was going to have that issue to some Mm. extent. You were one of the larger employers in a small community with a fortune 500 company that was well-respected and, you know, we want you here. And and so there, there were, there there was that aspect of it. Louisiana, I was a shock because the petrochemical industry is very, very large in Louisiana and no one who looked like me had ever run large petrochemical facilities in Louisiana. And I was running the largest one in the state. Mm-hmm. And so that one was very significant, both to, you know, to, to everybody, I mean, including, including us, including us, you know, my, my initial interfaces with, uh, you know, with the African-American community were, you know, really, are, are you sure, you know, how'd that happen? Yeah, not from a negative standpoint, just sure. we never thought we would see that. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing, I also reached out to different parts of the, the society, you know, there was a, um, there was an African-American ministers association. And um, I remember I think I'd been in the job for about six months or so. And I, you know, I had my assistant arrange a meeting with, I just, just wanted to meet him. And, you know, 
some of them thought something was wrong. Mm. And I said, no, I just, I want to meet you. I want to understand what are the issues that you're seeing? What have you seen in the past with our company? And, you know, it, it took a while, but we got that dialogue going. And so, you know, usually about every year, I would sit down with them again and have a lunch with them. And, you know, I told them, you know, we talked a year ago. Here's some of the things you told me. And, you know, two or three of these things I felt I could do something about. And here's what I did. <laughs> and so it was and so there it was it was kind of more shocked than anything else. Um, the Middle East was was very different. Um, I was just part of the landscape. And if I walked down the street and didn't say anything and I had on a turtleneck like this or a banded collar shirt, people would would, you know, they would greet me in Arabic. Um, I was comfortable in the environment. And, and after my time in Japan, you know, which was a much harder environment to live in back then than Dubai was, you know, in the late 2000s, I learned that you can, you know, you, you know, you, you learn how to navigate that. So, yes, it was it was very different. But in, in the Middle East, I was viewed as an American. Would you be willing to share? So I, I know that I, I imagine that you had some experiences of racism and discrimination and maybe some overt, uh, probably mostly covert. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share some of the more difficult ones that um, instances or incidents that you dealt with um, in your journey? I remember, um, I think it was my first week that I went to work for Dow was, uh, you know, I got the N word thrown at me and, and it was, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and I then, and, and the context of it was that that's going to be your nickname. Mm. And that was very disheartening, you know, because you, you know, you then realize, okay, well, at least now you know what you're, you're up against. So, so then you have to decide, okay, how am I going to deal with this? Because, you know, number one, it ain't going to go away on its own. And number two, sure. you know, maybe even more selfishly, what's in my best interest? And so you kind of have to work your way through that. And, you know, I'm not unique in that regard. I'm not alone. And, you know, and unfortunately it still goes on to, to this day. So there's, there's nothing, nothing going on there. So what you have to then do is recognize, okay, not everybody is doing that. And this is where it really becomes, um, you know, an interpersonal exercise. You have to decide, okay, who are the folks that you can work with? And then make sure you keep those relationships going. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you're, you know, you're singing come by and everybody's your best friend, but I'm not there to do anything other than the work, get my job done and, you know, and move on with my life and my career. So you find, you find that not everybody is in that space. Okay, great. Those are the folks that maybe I need to gravitate to. And then you also find that, okay, there's some other folks that that is the space that they're in and they're never going to see you any other way. Okay, fine. I don't have time for them. If I have to interface with them, okay, I do that prefunctory, but that's it. And I'm not going to go any further than that. The, the other thing I learned early on, you know, from those early experiences is that keep your personal and your professional life separate. <laughs> you know, you know, you've met folks before, I'm, I'm sure you have, and, you know, they'll tell you your whole life story, you know, at work, and, and, and then they want to hear yours, and, you know, if you're in a, a comforting environment, that's okay. If you're in an environment where you don't necessarily know where your friends are or who they are, that's not necessarily in your best interest, and so I learned early on, just 
keep it to yourself. You know, it's, you know, it, you can be friendly and you can be engaging, but you don't have to roll out everything because some folks are going to try to hurt you with it, or they might try to hurt you with it. And so that, that was, that was an early on, that was an early on learning. Just Well, that that's an interesting thing because I'm wondering how social, as you were uh, moving through your journey and moving up in your trajectory, how social did you have to be in that process? And how did you manage that? Um, you yeah. you had to give people a chance to know you because there are the vast majority of people who are in the middle and they're just doing their thing as well. And so sure. if they think they can work with you, fine. You know, if you, if you don't give them a reason. So when some good old boy tells you, Hey, you know, let's go have a beer after work. Maybe you ought to go have a Budweiser. Now you, you, know, <laughs> now, you don't necessarily want to, you know, do that every day, but sure. he's, th- he's throwing out a fig leaf and saying, okay, let's, let's sit and talk. And so, okay, I'll meet you halfway. And that can go a long way, a long way toward, you know, it, at least leaving those lines of communication open. Because, you, know, the, the, you know, the folks said what you're trying to make sure that you understand is who are the folks that have ill intent and make sure you stay away from them. And so, yeah, if that's if that's necessary, you go do it. If you want to, you know, if, if the group is going out for, you know, a dinner or a Christmas party or something like that. Yeah, you probably ought to show up. Now, do you need to be the first one in the door and the last one to leave? No. But if you never show up and you never give people a chance to know you at all, then, you know, you you accidentally become part of the issue. So you have to give them something that they can hang on. So, that, oh, yeah, we, I know him. And, you know, and then that's it. But you don't have to, you know, there, there have to be. I think that there are limits to it that you have to put in place. But yeah, that that is a part of it. What you find later in your career is that the social aspects of the job become equal to the technical aspects of the job. Can you say more about that? I got the job in Ohio because I knew how to pick wine. Mm. Nine months before I got the offer to go to Ohio as a plant manager, the um, one of the large, one of the big business leaders from headquarters was uh, down visiting our facility in Texas, and I was the last person on his agenda that day. He came by to visit me in the, the chemical plant where I was working, and you know I, I gave him a tour. You know, one of the products that we made was a key raw material, and, and another business in the company, and you know it, we were the sole source of supply. So he was curious about supply reliability. So I spent thirty forty five minutes with him talking about what we do to reliably produce good quality. And then I put him in my car and drove him back up to my boss's office. And so it was my boss, you know, this, you know, this, this big vice president and me. And uh, my boss says, well, it's six o'clock. Let's go to dinner. Earl, why don't you join us? Okay. So I called my wife and said, well, I'm not going to be home for dinner tonight. And this was at a really nice Italian place in Houston. So we get there and my boss loved, good food, well-presented, nice wine, and he forgot his glasses. So we're sitting there at the dinner table, and he hands me the wine card and says, I can't see the wine card, pick a wine. Mm-hmm. Well, I, as it so happened, my wife and I had been taking wine tasting classes over the past year or so. And I looked at the card, and I saw a few that I really liked that I thought would be good, and I picked them. 
And it turned out to be, you know, the absolute right wine for that meal at that time. Nine months later, I got the offer to go to Ohio. Never really understood why, but, you know, it, and it was probably four or five months after I got there. And I was sitting with my new boss now, who was this big vice president. And so I asked him, and I said, Rick, of all the people in the company, why did you pick me? And he said, it was at dinner in Houston when you picked the wine. And I, you know, and I thought, you know, I go to school, I get good grades, I try to do good work. And I get chosen because I can pick wine. <laughs> and it didn't quite come out that way. I said, I don't get it. And he said, look, any chemical engineer can go run a chemical plant. But if you're going to be up here, you're on your own. You got to go talk to the mayor. You got to talk to the local politicos. You have to represent this company out in the community. And I figured anyone who could pick that wine could do those things. I don't need people to run the plant. I need people who have the social skills to keep the plant operating and to keep our reputation good in the local community. That's how come you got the job. Well, and I, I think I think what you hit on too is that how <clears throat> pardon me important the soft the soft skills are as you climb the ladder that there are more of those kind of opportunities to um, engage in ways that are out of the box um, and not being able to do that can be problematic but being able to do that is really important. Yes. And and there's a point at which it becomes important. But I would tell you, it matters at all levels. Um, mm -hmm. when, I was, when I was in Japan, there was a colleague that went with me. He was a white guy from here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, we were there to build and start up a new chemical plant. Um, the facility existed in the U.S. A lot of its volume was being shipped to, to Asia. So we were going to build mm -hmm. a plant in Japan to produce it. And, um, you know, I had known this guy for a while. And so we, we end up in Japan. And he hated it. It was the first time in his life he had ever been a minority and he didn't sure. like the way it felt. He yeah. struggled to get things done with the folks in Japan because he just culturally was completely out of his depth. You know, and, you know, for me, you know, every time I walk out of the house, even today, I'm moving into a different society. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so I had no illusions that I was going to go to Japan and 150 million Japanese were going to go change all their behavior because Earl showed up. That wasn't going to happen. I was going to sure. have to adapt to them. So I worked to be able to do that. And I was way more effective than he was because I could adapt to a new culture. Why? Because I have to do it all the time at home. So, sure. OK, fine. All I'm doing is, you know, is, is, is what I always do. For him, it was it was a skill set he had never had a need to develop. So, I so was, they call that white privilege, Mister Shipp. Yeah, as you know. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's uh -huh. exactly right. And you know, here it, it it is exactly that. In other parts of the world, it actually goes in the other direction because if you are too far down that road and too comfortable in that space. You don't adapt because you can't. You just don't know how. So for him, it was a terrible experience. And the day we were, you know, once we got the facility up and running, the very day we were told, okay, the project's over, you can start thinking about going home, he left the next day and never wow. returned. I spent, you know, I thought, wait a minute, I'm in Japan on the company's dime. I spent two weeks just 
touring around Japan, met my wife in Hawaii and spent another 10 days there. And, and you know, for me, it was a great experience. And, and I've been back multiple times with Z over the years because, mm-hmm. you know, I learned to really like the culture. So what do you think when you look at um, your role as a business president and or vice president, what was the most surprising thing about working at that place in your company in addition to everything else you don't get a pass on delivering the results you know if if you you know i had 10 percent of the p l of the company so you have to deliver the results have to be there so at that point you're taking all of those tools and all of those skills that you've developed over a lifetime and you're focusing them on, I got to get this done. And, and I have to be able to deliver the expected results. Now, you don't get away from the bias, but you have to be a little bit more thoughtful about exactly what the bias is, because also understand at those levels, the competition is a lot different as well. If you're, you know, if you're, you know, if you're at a very high level in an organization, you're one of the few. And there are always a whole bunch of other people who would love to have that opportunity. So sometimes what's coming at you, is that just normal competition that anyone would expect? Or, or, or does it have a slant to it that maybe is a little bit more than that? And sometimes it could be both. But you know, that's, mm-hmm. that is the mm-hmm. one thing that you have to not lose sight of. So then you, you start to look at you know, things that are coming at you from a different lens, you know, because, sure. you, because you, you know, at the end of the day, you, you've got to make sure that you don't over respond or even under respond mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. given situation. Sure. So what did you said, you said it looked different. How would you describe it? If you were um, mentoring someone and they were trying to figure out how do I know if something is biased as I am at this top level in our organization, in my organization? Well, you, you know, you look at the source, you know, that's obviously one of your tests. There's no one way to do that, but you look at the source, you know, mm-hmm. one, one test. The other one is you have to look inward. Am I really doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am, and am I delivering that at the appropriate level and the appropriate capability? So it's a combination of things. So, you know, if you're getting criticism and it's valid, Okay, great. You just got something that you can work on and you don't want to you don't want to throw that out or, you know, or go in the other direction on that. So those are the two things that you have to think about. And then it's good at that point to have maybe your third parties Mm -hmm. or your your confidants that you can go to and and ask a question. Hey, I'm having trouble with this person. Can you give me a little bit of guidance? And that's where drinking the beer after work comes in handy, because now you've got someone who can go, you can go to it. They may be black, they may be white, they may be Hispanic, doesn't matter. But if you know you can go to them and say, hey, I'm having trouble with Dr. Stacy," And they tell you, oh, everybody has trouble with Dr. Stacy." Okay, when, when, okay that, that's a data point. Or if they look at you and scratch your head and say, you need to watch out for that person. You know, that may be a subtle message, but okay, I, I read subtle. And so now, you know, OK, maybe there is something there. So there's, a, you know, or that person's under pressure because they're not. I mean, there could be a 100 different reasons, but there's no one test. But that's where you use your skill set to figure out, OK, what, what's going on here? And then could you give us an example from your own um, journey that the time that you uh, had an incident and you 
trying to figure out whether it was biased or not. And maybe you landed on a place that, yeah, there's there's some bias happening here. Myself, um, you know, I can think of one instance where I felt pretty sure that some of my work had been tampered with or sabotaged. And it turned out it, it was. And, and, and it was a deliberate act. And the only thing that I could that I could attribute it to was racism. That's the only thing that I could attribute it to. So then I had two choices. Okay. Am I going to, you know, how will I address this? Cause you know, you can't let that go on. Eventually that's gonna, gonna get you. I got him back. I, I'm not proud of that, but I did. I found a way to retaliate so that it wouldn't be pinned on me. So I don't come across as the angry black man, but so that that individual knew if you do that to me, there will be consequences. And so it never happened again. So, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to recommend that, to, but, <laughs> but, it, but it felt good. It felt good at the time and it solved that issue. You know, I've had other instances where, and I can think of one in particular where it was me. I really wasn't doing the job I should have been doing, or I wasn't doing it well enough. And that, I mean, that's a tough discussion with yourself, but, you know, I had to back off and say, you didn't do that very well. And the criticism was valid. And so, okay, fine. I won't make that mistake again. You know, I'll I'll make mistakes, you know, but there'll be new mistakes. You just won't keep doing the same thing over and over again. So yeah, I've had both. I've had both. On the latter, it's a lot easier because it's up to you. So, okay, go find out what you need to find out. Seek help if you have to. Understand what good really is. Sometimes that can be the issue you don't necessarily know what good is or you think you know and you're wrong. So, you know, if you're, you know, if you're being told that your work isn't measuring up or your, your, you know, your work product output isn't good enough, you know, start with, okay, well, what does good look like? So 65% of African-Americans believe that they have to work harder to advance. Does this resonate for you or what's your perspective on that? Yeah, that, that's true. If you just, you know, if if we just do the job that everybody else is doing, we get to keep the job, but you won't necessarily get to advance. And there'll be a hundred different excuses as to why, but the the end output will will be the same. Part of doing a better job is something I said earlier. It's also about the visibility. And in many cases, we are doing an equal or better job but nobody knows. And you know, when you talk to a lot of young professionals in particular, you hear that a lot, you know, that they don't feel like they're recognized for the work that they're doing or, you know, or rewarded for it. And then when you start to ask, okay, so what are you doing to, to highlight what you're doing? You know, it's, it's crickets. No, they, they don't, they're not, they, they're not addressing that aspect of it. So, you know, and there's, there is a limit to self-promotion, but, you know, 100% of it, I mean, that's not good. Zero percent isn't good. There has to be a balance somewhere in the middle and it will change based on the situation. You know, if you're in a if you're in a crisis, go get the work done. If it's routine work, you know, yeah, make sure that you take appropriate credit and get some visibility for your contribution to the whole effort. Mr. Ship, as you know, I'm a psychologist and in the psychology literature literature, there's a current Uh, scholarship base around race-based stress. And I'm wondering if you might be able to speak to that. It's that extra effort that you go 
through when you're trying to figure out a situation or when you're getting negative feedback. You know, you have to go through the same thing that everybody else has to go through. Then you have to stop and ask the question, is there a racial component to this? And if so, where's that coming from? And OK, and then how am I going to deal with it? And so, yes, that becomes a that becomes an issue. The simple act of doing your job also becomes to some extent tied to that particularly if you have a job that has outward facing components to it. You're about to go out and speak to the community. You're, you know, you're really just there to represent the company or you're talking to customers trying to sell product, but you also have to think about, okay, how am I gonna be perceived and how do I not make that become a barrier and keep me from being successful? When you're in middle management, you know, it's more, cut, it's more cutthroat and then you, you, you know, and you can have it coming at you from all directions, sure. you know, from the bottom, from the top, you know, from, you know, your level you're at. <laughs> if you're at the top of the organization, nothing's coming down at you. So, so all you have to worry about is what's bubbling up, which you have a lot mm-hmm. more control over. What was your favorite part of uh, your work in, in those last, uh, that last position? that you were in, what, what was your favorite part? I would go back a little further than that. Stay, starting in about 2000, the year 2000, till the end of my career, so you know, eight, 17, 18 years, I was the corporate sponsor for the National Society of Black Engineers. You know, if there, if there will ever be a legacy for me, that's what it would be. The four or 500 women and men who came into our company through that program and are thriving and doing well and making a positive difference to the company and helping to pay my pension. So, you know, that, you know, that was, that was kind of one of the turning points for me. At the time I went to Louisiana, achieved a level in the company where I could decide, do I want to make a point? And it was around that time that I decided I want to make a difference. I'm through with making a point. You know, I know that there are bias in the company. I know that those bias exist in society. But I'm tired of going into meetings and seeing nobody there that does that looks like me. And that that you get to sit at the table that you don't that you're sitting at the table, whatever that table is, not just for yourselves, but for others as well. And even being able to reach back uh, kind of in the he ain't heavy, she ain't heavy. That's my brother. That's my sister. And it sounds like uh, just with that and the sustainability of it, that you were able to fully embody that. Right. But it also involves getting your allies. I invited, I don't know how many Caucasian managers and leaders to come to, you know, the Nesby annual meeting and help us recruit, including, you know, several executive vice presidents of the company and once the, the CEO of the company. And so, while we're sitting there, you know, they're, they're watching the talent walk by. And so then you can have an interesting discussion and say, you know, the next time somebody tells you that there's no African-American talent available, I hope you will remember this moment. And, you know, they look at you and say, yeah, I have heard that, you know, and, and now I know it's really wrong. So now you start to create, you know, more buy-in as you as you go. So it, it's not it's not about us doing it alone, but it also comes back to knowing who those allies are, who you can go and approach. And, and, and so you, 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 you kind of, you, you build on it over time. And part of what I hear you saying as well is, and yes, there was pushback in the pioneering of it, but, but moving past the pushback, keeping it moving was also an important part of the work as well. 
it's mm -hmm. hard to hide success and good results over time. And so as we started this discussion, you know, yes, it is true that, you know, you have to work harder in order to, you know, to get to the same place. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And to the extent that you can make sure that you get some credit or recognition for the work you do over time, that ha that is a winning strategy. It will it will work for you as long as you are not in a situation where, you know, your work is being hidden from from others or it's being stolen by others and represented as their own. I mean, that, that always is going to work and it varies, you know, different times. But all companies go through good times when, you know, almost everything they touch works. They also go through bad times when, you know, having people who can really get the work done and do it well makes the difference. And so you, you can't deny that if you're not competent in your profession, if your work product is not professional and good, you know, nothing, you know, okay, nothing's going to help you. So you got to start with that. If you start with that, you know, it will get noticed. Now, if you do like me and put your head down, it might be a while, but, you know, but it will get noticed at some point in time. That's a starting point. The other, the other key point I would tell you is you, you have to be a little bit adventurous. Um, you know, I've spoken with many African-American professionals who, at least what they indicated to me is that they would be very reluctant to take a foreign assignment anywhere. Now, if you're going to send them to London, okay, they would go or Paris. They'd, but, you know, to go to Japan, to go to the Middle East, you know, to, to go to China, not interested, wouldn't go, you know, wouldn't even consider it. Well, you know, to some extent, and that's okay. That There's nothing wrong with that. And if you're not suited for it, you shouldn't do it because, you, you, you know, you, you're not going to be successful. But the flip side of that is if you're not interested in, in doing those kinds of things and maybe sticking your neck out there and taking some risk, then your rewards are going to be proportionately smaller. What's your one piece of advice that you would give to white people in dealing with people of color? Well, first, let me say that, you know, people are all different. So, you know, there's a whole spectrum of white people. But I think I know the spectrum that you're talking about. And, and what I would say is, you know, we really are all in this together. Whenever something bad happens, we find that out. You know, when we had 9-11, you know, the guys ran the planes into the building. They didn't care who they killed, black, white, everybody. Coronavirus seems to be surprisingly, you know, strong on diversity and inclusion. You know, it'll kill anybody, you know, if you get it. And so what we find during these times is that we're all together but in between these kinds of times, we, you know, we, we, you know, we put up this, you know, us versus them thing. And, you know, the, the whole thing in Charlottesville about, you know, we will not be replaced and you're not going to replace. But, you know, well, OK, well, run the math. If you're white, you're already a minority in the world. And that's changing, you know, you know, one birth at a time every day. And that's not going to reverse itself. I mean, we're already past that point. You really have to think about, you know, it's only one world and we're all on the world together. Helping everybody helps everybody. Trying to help a small group of people helps That's nobody. I, I did want to ask you one more question I forgot uh, before we go into the other fun ones. So you indicated there, so your username is Pioneering Resonator. Could you tell me about how you chose that and what, what made, I think I know, 
uh, in the ways that you have been a pioneer and probably are still pioneering even on some of the boards and things that you're working on. But I, I would love to hear you talk about that. Son. Uh, it's just a matter of, you know, some of the things that I've done, you know, yeah, I was maybe one of the first African-Americans to do it. But how do you also make the way easier for the people who come behind you? Because there were folks that came ahead of me early in my career who also paved that path so that it was easier for me as well. So, you know, that's about making that balance and saying you want to you want to give back. How would you describe being a pioneer and that the, I'm the first African-American and then fill in the blank? Sometimes that's that added pressure of, of being an African-American that you talked about, because you recognize that, you know, if and I remember this very, very poignantly when I was in Louisiana. If I screw this up, it will be a decade before another African-American gets a chance to be a senior vice president in this company in a line assignment, because that was a line assignment. And so, yeah, you, you, you think about that. Now, you can't dwell on it every day or, you know, you, you, you know, you never get anything done. But you do. But you do recognize that, hey, you know, my actions will have consequences for many, many others and go far beyond just myself. And so I need to make sure that I'm kind of balanced. Every now and then there is a, uh, I mean, there's, there are things that you, you have to learn that you just can't get any other way. Nobody can tell you everything. No group of coaches, mentors, sponsors can, can give you everything that you need to know. Um, this happened to me, I, I think I had been with the company for two years and um, I was making a, an ag product. And this product was used to uh, actually to grow pineapple in the Hawaiian Islands. And we would send it out to California on rail cars, and then they would ship it to the Hawaiian Islands. And one day, the railroad had an accident and turned over one of the rail cars, and it was actually leaking. So I get a call from the emergency services at the company that, you know, they need someone who knows how to handle the product to go to Clovis, New Mexico, where they had had a derailment. And uh, get your stuff and go to the airport and, you know, there'll be a plane waiting for you. And so I did, you know, it's like three year engineer with two, three years with the company. So I get out there with my gear and, you know, and there's the company jet sitting there and I climb aboard and we take off and we fly to New Mexico. We land this, this, I didn't even know we had a corporate jet until that point in time. That's what I mean. Nobody tells you that. So, so I get there and I'm sitting on the plane. It was a little, it was a little Lear 45. So it wasn't a, wasn't a big plane. So, um, and so I, you know, we get out there and, um, when we land, I could see the New Mexico State Police waiting for the airplane because they were going to take me to, you know, the the um, the site of the derailment. And um, so I'm climbing off of the plane, and I looked at the pilot, and uh, and I said, "So, uh, Frank, when are you guys leaving?" And he said, "Well, Mr. Ship, we will leave when you get back." Oh, okay, that's novel. You know, the plane waits on me. That I didn't didn't know it did that. So we went and, you know, it was it wasn't leaking bad. And, you know, it was product that was going to go in the ground anyway. It was an ag product. So, you know, we we got it repaired, came back out on the plane, went back. It was 10 years before I got on another corporate jet. However, the learning experience was was, I would say, an awful lot of fun. I at least knew that the planes existed. And I knew the doggone thing will wait on you as opposed to the other way around, you know, and, and you don't take your shoes off until after you get on board as opposed to being on board. So, you know, for a kid growing up in inner city Detroit, you know, it was it was, you know, it was nice to know that, you know, hey, that's how the other half lives. And the next time I was on one of those birds, I needed to do that because I was I was fine with the CEO of the company. But and it had been a long time. 
but I at least knew how to act, you know, or at least I knew I knew, <laughs> knew how not to act. <laughs> Mr. Ship, I wonder if you might be able to share with me and our listeners things that seem surreal to you about C-suite travels. What's some of your favorites? There were a lot of them, and and there there's a lot of upside. Um, I was in Beijing in the bird's nest for the opening ceremonies for the Be- the Beijing Olympics. You know, we were entertaining customers there. You know, it was a warm night. We had, um, I mean, and those were long days because you were up by six. You would barely get in bed by midnight because, you know, we were there to entertain our customers and, and, and have, you know, some pretty good dialogue about future business as well. But I will remember that evening, you know, in the bird's nest watching, you know, all the different, you know, athletic delegations come in from all the companies. You know, it kind of hits you that, wow, this is this is, you know, it's one of those unique events in the world. You're not going to see it again. Um, as a uh, as a VP of the company in the U.S., I was at uh, the inauguration for the Obamas in 2008. And, and, oh, by the way, the crowds were bigger then, just so you know, because I was in the crowd. OK, it was a it was a cold day. I mean, it was really cold that day. And, uh, you know, both my wife and I and, you know, our feeling was we're going to stay out here in this. We're going to see this. We do at a balls that evening. And I said, if I get sick and get pneumonia and I'm sick for the next two weeks, OK, but I'm not I'm not going to miss this. <laughs> you know, I can I could go on and on. But, you know, there's lots of events like that where, you know, you, you get a chance to go participate in something that otherwise you you didn't know it existed or you certainly never would have uh, been able to enjoy it in the way you did. Well, our elders would always say, act like you've been here before. <laughs> so there was a point in the interview where Mr. Ship fully embodied his elder statesman status and just really started to just almost spit um wisdom after proverb, after uh, encouragement, after tips and tricks. Uh, and you'll, you'll notice that in this part of the interview. So when you think about mentoring young people, what do you tell them? Um, what Because it's uh, not secrets, but uh, maybe just secrets like that, that of the perks that come along with C-suite traveling, as we've called it. The the most questions I get are about international, you know, travel and expat assignments. I probably get that more than than anything else from from young people. You know, how do you how do you handle that? And and my answer is similar to what I gave to you. Um, you have to have a little bit of adventurism because things are different in different parts of the world. You know, the world's not going to change, or parts of the world, other parts won't change because you show up. If you are only interested in ever eating, you know, meat and potatoes. You probably don't want to go to, you know, to anywhere in Asia, you know, just don't go because you're going to starve to death. You know, if you are comfortable, you know, with your, you know, you know, with your house and your big backyard and you get a great assignment in London, you need to think about that because Londoners live in small apartments, you know, the green space or the parks that you go to, it's a different lifestyle. So if you're not used to, you know, the 900 square foot apartment and you aren't comfortable with that, don't don't go to London expecting a 3000 square foot house because, you know, they don't exist there. 
you know, and, and and on and on and on. I mean, those are the those are the questions that I get. Will will black people be more or less discriminated against in other societies? That that comes up a lot. And there is discrimination in other parts of the world. It takes on different forms. Sometimes it actually isn't discrimination, but because of our relative experience and where we come from, we think it's that way. When I would walk down the streets in Japan, you know, we were in a small town. We were building a chemical plant outside of town. You know, people would literally stop and stare at me because, you know, I'm six foot two black guy. They don't, that's, that's not what you see in small town Japan. It absolutely is not. And it was really uncomfortable for the first two weeks until I realized, wait a minute, the Japanese aren't per se upset with me. It's not a racist thing. I'm just a novelty. And, and okay, and then you move on. And eventually you, you know, I don't know if you ever get used to the stairs, but you, you understand where they're coming from. You never, you never get used to it, but you learn how to process it a little bit differently. So I get a lot of questions like like that, you know, and, and so my my experience to every my, my comment to everyone is you have to try it before you really know. But it starts with you at least being willing to be open. And surprisingly, many of our younger professionals, they don't even have a passport. OK, so you work for an international company that has operations all over the world. And if you get a call tomorrow and said, hey, we need you to take a trip to Spain because we got some, you know, some business to do and we need you to do it. They couldn't go because they don't have, you know, that one simple document. Well, OK, well, first, go get your passport so that you're prepared if the opportunity comes up. It might make a difference. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't hurt you if you don't. So, you know, you, you get into a lot of things like that. But I try to tell people to, you know, keep an open mind, particularly if you're looking at international assignments, maybe even take a vacation overseas, see what it looks like before you get there. And, and then you, you can better decide. So, Mr. Ship, can you tell us a little bit about what your thoughts are when negotiating salary and how to ask for what you want and managing the collaborative nature of African-American culture with that? So what we learned, and, and I have shared this a lot with African-American professionals, because the white boys do it. If you want it and there's an issue, go ask for what you need. Sometimes they may tell you no, but quite often you're actually lowballing yourself. What you're asking for is less than they're prepared to give. I wasn't asking for a raise. I wasn't asking for any other special allowance. I just said, look, here's, here's an issue, and, and it's a family issue, and, and it's not reasonable to expect that we wouldn't try to address it. And the answer was, no, that's reasonable. It is reasonable. Go do it. And so that was how we did. So for five years, you know, four times a year, my wife would take off. And when she would come back to the U.S., you know, she could check on mom. And, you know, and she did. She'd schedule the doctor's appointment and the dentist appointments and everything else and then go visit family. And, and then she, you know, show up in Dubai again in a couple of weeks. And that was how that was how she she managed it. So what we what we learned early on was, you know, you got to have the discussion internally and see if you're both up to it. But then beyond that, there are things that happen. And it's amazing some of the accommodations that organizations would make. So it, it, was, it wasn't necessarily big stuff, but it's just not being afraid to ask. But again, Dr. Stacy, those are one of the things that people won't tell you. You, you know, you've got to go find someone who's willing to share those with you or you'll, or you'll never know these. Thank you to our guest daughter, Mr. Earl Shipp, for joining us on this week's episode of Being the Dot. This episode was edited by Caroline Bone and Heather Lang. Special thanks to our podcast intern, Amanda Gillette. 
Our music is provided by Jumpa. Being the Dot is sponsored by davisdeliciousdelights.com. Davis Delicious Delights, custom-made, personalized pastries, pies, and cookies made with a dash of Southern flair. Visit davisdeliciousdelights.com and use our coupon code being the dot for a 20% off offer of purchases of $35.99 or more. davisdeliciousdelights.com, bringing the yum to your front door. Please join us next week when I sit down with a group of women who will share their experiences and reflections after the George Floyd murders. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.